The sermon lesson today is taken from John chapter 15, and we will read verses 12 through 17, and I hope you will read it with me. It'll come up on the screen, and we'll be ready to go. Are you ready? Are you ready? Together, please. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Friends, God always blesses the reading and the hearing of the word. Amen. Well, they tore down his house a couple of days ago. Ariel Castro got life in prison plus 1,000 years. He held three young women hostage in Cleveland. One of the young women said this the other day, I lived in hell for 11 years. She said, I cried each night, I felt so alone. I felt so alone. We all know the feeling of loneliness from time to time. Do you remember as a kid going to somebody's birthday party and you really didn't know everybody there and how lonely that felt? Or today you get invited to a party and everybody in there is buzzing and interacting and, and you walk in and you really don't know anybody and it's extremely uncomfortable. Some people know loneliness in their marriage. Maybe just moments of it, but some for much more than that. Some know loneliness in their business relationships. Some know loneliness in a sports venue. There's nothing worse than being there with thousands of people cheering and you don't have anybody to high five. And there are people in the church that know loneliness too real loneliness. But few of us know what it is to feel alone all of the time, to constantly feel alone, to feel that cloud hanging over us, that somehow there's nobody around us to embrace us, to care for us, to welcome us. You see, I really believe we are wired for community. We are wired to be part of a community where we are not only welcomed in, but wanted. All of us want to be accepted. All of us want to be brought into the group. All of us want to feel that we are viable, not because of some talent or gift or something we can give, simply because of who we really are. We are social beings. We want to belong. We want to bond. We want to connect. and We want to love. There are a number of community opportunities here at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. We have numerous small groups, and I can tell you from people that have been in these groups, they love them. 
They schedule their travel plans around being at that small group. That small group is their church. It's really the strength of the larger church to have people in small communities of faith where they have some identity. Here at Bel Air, there are many people who experience community on our mission trips. They discover people they'd never met before, and yet they work right alongside them, and suddenly they have friends for life. I think of all the various Bible study groups that are here. Opportunities for people not only to get an education, but to embrace intimacy with other Christians. I love that. I believe we were wired to be in community. I'm amazed since I've been here at how many people come to this church on a regular basis but are not members. Are we that bad? I mean, what is it about us that repulses you? I just wish you'd decide to become a member of this church, to identify with the community of faith here at Bel Air. On Saturday, September 21, we're going to have a day when we introduce people to membership in the life of Bel Air Presbyterian Church. It'll be a great day. Yes, there'll be some education. We'll talk about what it is to be a Christian. We'll talk about what it is to be a Presbyterian. And you don't have to pray, be a Presbyterian to go to heaven. Did you know that? You do not have to be a Presbyterian to go to heaven. But why take a chance? I don't understand why take a chance. And then on Sunday, September 22, we're going to celebrate your membership in this church. Why do we think it's important to step over the threshold and become a member of a church like this? Because you need to set a place within the community of faith. You need to be in a spot where you can contribute. You need to be in a place where you can be held accountable for your faith in Christ. We are wired to be in community. During the 19th century, Britain's foreign policy went like this. They believed in something called splendid isolation. That's how it was dubbed. Splendid isolation. What did they mean? Well, Britain was at a point where they didn't want to build alliances with other countries, and particularly other European countries. They wanted to be left by themselves. Leave us in splendid isolation. And then Britain also said, well, you know, we've got all these trade routes, sea trade routes, with all of our colonies, and we want the fish and the fur. We want the timber, the wheat, the iron ore, and the coal. We want that to be ours. We don't want to have to share any of that with anybody else. We want to live in splendid isolation. Leave me alone. Then came expansionism by the Germans and the Russians. And Britain finally woke up and realized that splendid isolation was a flawed policy. In John chapter 15, that you just read with me, Jesus deals with splendid isolation. Jesus actually deals with social isolationism. And Jesus says that we are to take a commandment, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's conditional. Love one another, not in the way you and I normally love. Love one another as Christ has loved us. That's a whole different standard. There are 43 one another's in the New Testament. This is one of them. Love one another as I have loved you. Our love comes and goes. It ebbs and flows. It's high and low. It's hot and it's cold. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Savior's love for us. And it's not a funky, sentimental feeling. 
It is a tough reality that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the kind of love we're talking about. There is more mercy in God than sin in us. We need to trust that. And that love is revealed in faithfulness. Fidelity means I will do anything I can to take care of you. And that's really what the Savior is suggesting to us. In verse 13, he says, No one has greater love than this, than lay down one's life for his friends. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary? Lay down his life for his friends? Then in verse 14, he's got a qualifier. He says, if you're going to be my friends, then you have to keep my commandments. C equals P plus O. Covenant equals promise plus obligation. The Savior is saying, I have a promise for you. I'm never going to let you go. But you have an obligation built into this. You need to be obedient to my commandments. Then in verse 15, he talks about being friends. Being a friend of Jesus. You know what's weird to me? It's staggering to me. That there are six, seven billion people on this planet. And God invites us to be his friend. I don't understand that. But that's the invitation. And he does a contrast between being friends and being servants. He suggests that friends have full knowledge of the other person, but that a servant only has limited knowledge. He suggests that a friend of God knows intimacy with God, but that a servant has just limited access. He suggests that a friend knows trust, whereas a servant knows nothing but suspicion. He suggests a friend knows community, but a servant knows isolation. If we are going to be friends of God, if we're going to be friends with Jesus, then this world cannot suck the self-esteem out of you. That's how strong it really is. Servants, servants get used. Servants get bored. Servants get beaten, certain servants get alienated. And Jesus said, I'm not interested in you being a servant. I want you to be my friend. And what's it mean to be a friend of Jesus? You no longer have to be addicted to approval. You no longer have to be addicted to approval. I was 40 years old and still longing for my father's blessing. It never came. And I kept walking around thinking, you know, well, surely the old man's grateful for what I've done, and some I've had some good things happen, and all that, and I'd tell him what happened, and all he'd ever say to me is, you're just so lucky to have so many good Presbyterians around you. That's all the old man would ever say. And I'm walking around going, where's the affirmation? Where's the approval? You know, maturity is realizing you don't have to have the approval to be faithful. And I had to learn that lesson. Another thing it means to be a friend of Jesus is that grace makes our self-knowledge bearable. You know your assets and your liabilities. You know your pluses and your minuses. You know the memories that are painful. But God's grace in Jesus Christ makes our self-knowledge bearable. The Roman emperors were well known for having a group around them called Friends of the Emperor. 
friends of the emperor. And these people had enormous power because they were intimate with the emperor. The emperor trusted them and looked to them for counsel constantly. And so the emperor would call on his friends when there were tough decisions to be made. Not the generals, not the proconsuls, not the procurators, not the statesmen. He called on his friends. And everybody in the first century understood the Roman emperor's friends. So when Jesus uses the term friends, this is part of the context. And Jesus said, I want you to be my friends. It's implied that there's intimacy and trust there. Sociologists tell us that 25% of the people in America today, 25% of the people in America today do not have anyone with whom they can reveal their most personal issues. No one. And then the sociologists go on to say that it's highly unusual for anyone to have as many as two confidants. Two confidants. I have a friend back in Houston named Jim. Jim went hunting and a, some shotgun stuff nailed him in the eye and he's blind in one eye. And so Jim wears a black patch over his eye. Now he's kind of proud of it if you want to know the truth. And uh, Jim, so we call him Dead Eye. That's what we call him, Dead Eye. Good old Dead Eye, you know, he's, he's a Methodist and he greets at a very large Methodist church. And by the way, when he was out hunting, it wasn't with Dick Cheney. <laughs> he greets at this Methodist church and hands out bulletins. He's uh, kind of a glorified usher, but he likes to do it, and he asks permission to give people a hug as they come into church. Now, what he does to me, we work out together, and he, he gripes about the makeup and powder and lipstick and stuff that get on his lapels and on the shoulders of his suits and I say don't be so cheap just go get another glued together suit at Joseph A. Bank and um, that's what he does but Jim told me this one Monday morning he said yesterday morning in church I had an interesting experience said there's an elderly lady that I have seen many times I've often given her a hug I always ask her if she wants a hug she says yes so I give her a hug and uh, he said Yesterday she said, do you realize that's the only hug I get every week? One in four of us knows what it is to be isolated, detached, disconnected. One in four. And that's a seismic social thud. Yes, there's the internet. Yes, there's Facebook. I'm tired of people telling me I need to be linked in. I don't want to be linked in. Leave me alone. Splendid isolation. Here I am. Did you see that t-shirt last week? It said, Santa saw your pictures on Facebook. For Christmas, you're going to get clothes and a Bible. I love that. People who live in isolation tend to self-medicate. Psychiatric community can tell you a lot about that. They tend to self-medicate. 
the abuse of alcohol, drugs, and sexual liaisons, and compulsive behaviors of all kinds, obsessive compulsive behaviors. That's not what God has in plan for, planned for us. George Gallup says, we are the loneliest people on this planet. Americans are the loneliest people on this planet. And that takes a toll. It takes a toll socially, psychologically, and certainly spiritually. You see, there are people all around us starving for significant relationships. One in four, they say. People want to belong, they want to bond, they want to connect, and they want to love. There are four ways to live life. Cope, dope, mope, and hope. And I pray you're in that last category. Cope, dope, mope, and hope. I was in Texas last week. Do you people have any idea how good your weather is here? <laughs> I mean, you people are ruined. I was in Texas last week and in Houston. It was so blamed hot. When I backed my car out of the garage, the temperature came up and said it was 107. And the car had been in the garage. Wasn't even in the sun. And we're talking humidity that, you know, you just drip. That's all there is. You don't have to shower. Just use a little soap. Walk around. <laughs> Guy from El Paso ran into me last week, and he said, do you realize that how important El Paso is to the United States? And I'm going, I've been there. <laughs> you got to be kidding. Well, he says, it's 600 miles east of Los Angeles. 600 miles south of Denver, 600 miles west of San Antonio. We're the center of the earth. Have you been to El Paso? Boy, he's an optimist. You know, Christians are cured optimists. We are a people of hope. And in Jesus Christ, we have a reason to hope. The God we worship is creator, redeemer, sustainer. We're not locked into a fatalistic system. God does intervene in our world. Why else? The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. God does intervene in our world. And you are not some biological mistake. You are here on purpose for a redemptive purpose. I believe that with all my heart. And you're invited to be a child of God. You're invited to be a friend of God. And no matter what kind of mess you've made out of your life, you can make a 180. You can do a U-turn. In theological language, it's called repentance. And then there's acceptance. Then there's forgiveness. And then there is peace. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. I love to read the Old Testament because there are all kinds of stories about attempts on the part of superpowers to erase the people of God. Wipe out those Israelites. Get rid of them. And all kinds of efforts have been made. There's been an avalanche of empires that came after the people of God. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, they all tried to wipe them out. And this flea-bitten community of hope persists. Is there any hope beyond the debris 
of the people of God? Any hope? Do you know what it says in John chapter 1? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hope beyond the debris. In Jesus Christ, we have hope. Hope for a world of shattered hopes. That's the good news. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, forgive us for the time that we have spent in splendid isolation. We know your will for us is to be part of your community, part of the body of Christ. Help us to make the necessary steps in order to bring about something of your kingdom on this planet. Thank you for this great church. Thank you for these dear friends. And Lord, you know our hearts, so meet us where we are. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.